Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Hi. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm David Whitebread, um, and I'm with my colleagues Sarah Baker and Jenny Gibson. And um, welcome to our discussion about play. I can't see a thing, but I assume there's somebody out there, so <laughs> lovely to see you. <laughs> um, okay, all work and no play. So play is a bit of a mystery. Um, sometimes people think it's a bit trivial. What we're hoping to convince you about and show you today is that actually it's rather an interesting thing to try and investigate. And for that reason, we have recently set up at the University uh, of Cambridge a new research centre called Pedal Play in Education, Development and Learning. And what we're going to try and do is show you what some of the interesting questions are about play, and particularly children's play, and um, how we're going about trying to investigate them. So I just want to start off by showing you a typical piece of children's play and um, see what you think's happening here and why are the children doing it and are they learning anything. There is a forest school. So you can find that on Facebook, it's called The Forest School, <laughs> if you want to watch it again. Um, what I love is the guy right at the end, I don't know if you noticed, who walks up, watches, watches all these, looks at all these other kids playing in this puddle and just walks past. <laughs> yeah, whatever, you know. Um, interesting though, why are they doing it? Is it this is players, maybe an adaptive behaviour that's evolved in human beings, why are they doing it? What are they learning, if anything? Um, and notice, interestingly, that it's not just random, is it? It's, uh, there's actually a bit of order and structure to what they were doing there. It's a kind of social activity, they were going in a line and so on. All sorts of curious aspects to it. Okay, so we're at the point where play is uh, a really interesting thing to start doing research about at the moment, precisely because there's been a lot of research about it, but not very conclusive research. There's a lot of what you might call suggestive research, sort of suggests there's something interesting happening here, something it might be worth finding out about. But we're not really at the point where we actually um, know very much for, for definite, certainly, that you, know, you could claim as a scientific finding. Um, so I'll show you what some of the evidence is that we already have. And actually, there's quite a lot of it, but um, as I say, not very conclusive. So, for example, evolutionary psychologists have looked at play for a long time and noticed that as animals evolve and become more sophisticated in terms of their intellectual abilities, the period of relative immaturity gets longer and longer, um, and 
so does the amount or the variety of different forms of playfulness. And finishing up, of course, with human beings who engage in, so mammals engage in physical play, primates engage in play with objects, and human beings uniquely, we think, or maybe not, dolphins might do this as well, engage in what we might call symbolic play, playing around with language and codes and so on. In anthropology, people such as Peter Gray have investigated, have looked at extant hunter-gatherer societies. We all evolved for hundreds of thousands of years in hunter-gatherer societies. We've essentially got a hunter-gatherer brain, and yet we're living in you know, a rather different uh, way now. Um, but how, how do what happens with children in hunter-gatherer societies? And shown that actually they're completely unconstrained, they're just allowed to play all day, obviously they don't go to school, uh, there's no structure, there's no requirements on them, and yet they learn to be uh, highly uh, effective and valuable members of their um, communities in some way. Maybe the play has something to do with that. In, there is some neuroscience, um, not with human children yet, uh, but technologies are developing that might enable that in a few years' time. But there, are, there is work that's been done with simple mammals such as mice and rats, showing that um, when they're allowed to play in certain ways, play with other mice or play with objects, you know, wheels and bells and things, that, the do that does seem to be related to increased synaptic growth in particular parts of their, of their brain. So in a way, it doesn't when, they, when they're not allowed to play. Um, and in developmental psychology, which is our uh, joint area of um, interest and study, there have been associations developed with cognitive ability and with emotional well-being, but these are associations. We don't know whether um, humans uh, get clever because they're playful or whether they get playful because they're clever, you know, and so on. So, um, but we know there's an association. Uh, we know that a playful approach to com early conversations with young children seems to enhance their language development rather than an instructional approach. We know that um, uh, children's um, academic achievement seems to be related to how playful they are, but again, we don't know which way around that is. Um, and we know that a key uh, ability, which, which is termed self-regulation, which is the children's, children's growing ability to be aware of and in control of their own mental processes, um, that that uh, seems to be uh, related to playfulness also. So maybe that's um, a key to what's, to what's happening there. We, we know that I said earlier on that human beings have developed um, uh, perhaps a more greater variety of different ways of playing than other, than other species. And there are arguably a whole range of, of different ways in which human beings play. You can divide it up in different ways. There are all sorts of definitions and so on. Um, but one that I've suggested is looking at these five different ways through which children seem to be learning things um, through different types of play. So phys play, physical play, uh, play with objects, building things, and so on and so forth. Pretense, of course, lots and lots of pretense children engage in, and games with rules, games they've made up with rules or games, standard games. And what I've termed symbolic play, which is playing with the means of communication. So playing with language, playing with drawing, <coughs> playing with music. This is actually my all-time favorite children's drawing, by the way, in the middle there. This is a man taking his dog for a walk. 
Uh, it, despite the number of legs, apparently it is a dog. <laughs> so this is drawn by quite a young child who hasn't learned to count to four yet. But you can tell it's um, you can tell it's the man and his dog because you know this thing about how you grow to look like your pets. <laughs> so here we are with the same face. Okay. Um, if you're enthused by this talk of the three of us are going to present to you and you really like to know more about it, uh, I myself and uh, some of my PhD students put together a report a few years ago called The Importance of Play, and that's actually a free download on, on the web, so you can just Google The Importance of Play and that will come up as one of the few first few hits, and you can just download that. And that contains quite a bit of the evidence uh, that we have so far um, and some policy uh, recommendations about what we ought to be doing about it. Now, there are all sorts of questions, but there are perhaps two questions at the moment that are inspiring actually not only ourselves, but actually quite a number of developmental psychologists all over the world to, to start getting reinterested in children's play. And one is that there is a concern, shared by some, not by others, that children's uh, childhood today, particularly perhaps in the UK and in the, in the States, and in parts of Europe is not as playful as it was perhaps when some of us were children. There's perhaps less outdoor play, perhaps less play in the street, that kind of thing, um, and other things. Um, and arguably less playful opportunities in schooling as well. Schooling's got perhaps a little bit more serious and focused and target-driven than it used to be. So there's a question about well, what impact is that having these changes, are they just changes, are they changes for the good, or, or are there other things we should be worried about there? And then in the, in the more in the academic world, um, a lot of people are starting to look at the role of play in learning, development and well-being, and there's a real resurgence at the moment of research in this area of which we are part. So these are two very big, broad questions that we're being directed by, and in fact, this is the pedal research team at the moment, there's six, uh, six of us, um, and actually, uh, well, in fact, about 13 or 14 of us all together, a whole bunch of research assistants and administrators who were setting up this new centre. Um, and Jenny and her colleague, Elian Fink, are trying to look at what is play. We still don't have a clear definition. We're not sure what's happening in the brain when somebody's being playful. Um, myself and my colleague, Marisol Basilio, are looking at how play develops through the life course, I'll say a little bit about that in a moment, and Sarah Baker and her colleague Audrey Kittredge are looking at, well, is there a role for play in school? Um, and just a mention a couple of uh, quick things that I'm involved in at the moment, and then we'll go on to, to Sarah and Jenny's part of the presentation. Um, we're setting up a, uh, one of the things we're attempting to do is to set up a longitudinal study to look at how playfulness emerges in childhood, and then as we go through into adulthood, how that um, might develop. Are playful children, do they turn into playful and creative and, uh, you know, and uh, successful adults, or, or, or is it more complicated than that? One of the really interesting bits of research I'm getting increasingly interested in, and we're beginning to look at as part of the early part of that longitudinal study, is how adults play with children when they're little and the way that adults seem to give children cues as to this is play and it's a particular type of play. Um, and the other thing we're doing, as I say, is we're looking at existing um, uh, longitudinal studies. There was a Millennium Cohort study 
of 18,000 children, which is started in the year 2000, and we're looking at various questions that we can look at by kind of secondary data analysis from that. The other study I want to show you is one that we did complete recently. I'm just going to show you a bit of video about this. It's called Play, Learning, and Narrative Skills, and we were looking at, this was a project in schools, looking at if we adopt a playful approach to, to writing, will this enhance children's enthusiasm for writing and the amount they write and therefore their ability in writing. Writing is something a lot of young children struggle with and teachers use all sorts of techniques, but this is one that hasn't been tried. So I'm just going to show you, this is a pictures of me delivering truckloads of Lego to various schools and children building what they want to write about in Lego in a playful way in small groups and, um, and uh, seeing what comes out of it. And these are the kind of questions we might ask um, uh, about whether this kind of playful approach enhances the children's work, group work abilities, their enthusiasm, their abilities in writing, and their creativity. So I'm just going to show you now uh, a little bit of video about this project. <laughs> So basically, Abby, this yeah. is what's going to happen. So they're going to be standing like this. Yeah. And they ask him, who are you? And then he says, I'm your father. And then he says, but you are dead. There's a common misconception, uh, I think, in the everyday world that play is something that children do. It's a stage they go through. Uh, it's quite fun, we let them do it. It doesn't serve any particular purpose and they grow out of it. There is a huge problem in primary education in supporting children to become uh, able and effective writers. So we were trying out and finding out whether a playful approach could help children in the writing and we're using Lego as an educational resource for children to represent their ideas. Lego helps me see the creativity in my brain. Mm -hmm. So when we're writing, it really helps me get the effect in my brain. So we had some previous research showing that this was a promising approach, but we didn't know how it would work in the classroom. We work with the teachers as co-researchers, and I mean that quite seriously, because we know the research, but they know how to teach. They, better than anybody else, can see the difference that this intervention was making. Before I was involved in this, I found that my English lessons, there was a big pressure to get onto writing as fast as possible. And it meant that often children would come out afterwards with very uninspired ideas. Today, for our English lesson, we are going to be finishing the story of the Hero Twins. I'd like you to write the opening to your story. Make sure that as you do so, you're using your model. Move things around to help you to get ideas for your writing. We've been using this book to 
tell a story. With the Lego, the children have been recreating the story in storyboard form using the individual flats. This is the ending to get back home. That's the And then when one of them dies, King. King. The other one has to find the transport to get back home and it's a bike. When you get to a different part of the story, you can change the scene very quickly in front of you to move the characters around in the scene. It's one of the great things about it as opposed to a paper plan. If, like, Hunter did survive, would, like, his father come home? Yeah. A key part of our research is going into the schools to observe what children actually do in the small groups when they're working together. We measured their metacognitive abilities, we measured their basic language. We've also taken measures of the children's fundamental oral narrative skills, so how good are they at telling a story. So I was pleased to be taking part in the research project but really struggled to begin with. I thought it would be an exciting, exhilarating, positive experience. It couldn't have been further from that. It was just a, it was a horrible, horrible disaster. The role of the teacher has to change some, somewhat because they no longer become you know, the fountain of knowledge and the instructor. Ideally, they become co-players. What started to work was just literally trial and error a lot of trial and error. And then he falls off again. <laughs> I like building and uh -huh. then sort of writing down and changing it because yeah. if you get stuck, mm -hmm. then you like, can, you can look at up. the picture and the Lego and sort of say, ah, oh, wait, we need to describe that more mm. because of blah, blah, blah. When they do their writing, they want to do that model justice. They want to add as the detail in the writing that they've added to their model. Let's look at the bit where David's just left. At the moment what we're doing is we're, we're doing what's called behavioural coding. It will enable us to detect patterns in the behaviour. We know that children have improved in their uh, levels of creative fluency, their levels of metacognition, the standard of their writing, their ability to collaborate. But what is very clear is, is that the children who have benefited most from this project are the ones who started out as the least able writers. The main point is engagement and fun. Children like it. If you make anything more motivating and more engaging, then clearly that's going to help. Great. So um, we're going to take a closer look at learning through play. Are there any teachers here or people who have been teachers in the past? Okay, a few of you. It'll be really interesting to see what you think about this. What I'm going to talk about in the next section is some work that I'm doing um, with some colleagues in the center. And we're really interested in this idea that children can learn through play. They do learn through play. And therefore, how does that work in a school setting? What is the role of the teacher? What is the role of the child? And how is the environment set up in a way that can, can promote that? So before I go any further, 
I would like to know if we were to start from the beginning, forgetting how schools work now, forgetting the kind of school that you went to or the kind of school that your children go to, what would you like for your children to learn? I mean, this is, I know this is a big question, but I'm asking you <laughs> about the vision. What is it that school should be for? What are the things ultimately that as adults, we look at our children and we look at future generations and we ask them, we ask ourselves, what, what should they come out with? What are the skills or the dispositions that are the most important? Yeah. Cooperation. Confidence, cooperation, anything. Resilience. Life skills, be able to think. Communication. Communication. Happiness. Happiness, okay. Um, I would like to take that list, and I, I mean, we're not going to do this now, but I would you know, suggest you could, just as a fun little activity, go look up the curriculum in the UK, or any other curriculum mm. for that matter, <laughs> and look for those things. Try and ask yourself, where do those things show up? I know teachers believe those things are very important. Parents, everyone thinks these things are important. But how are we setting up our schools and our education systems to promote those things? I was at a conference recently organized, um, hosted by the Lego Foundation, who's our main funder, initially for the center that we're working in. And we asked the very same question of hundreds of experts in education from around the world. These were people from NGOs teachers, uh, from governments, all kinds of people interested in education from a very serious point of view. And this is the word cloud. So these are, these are the main terms that they came up with. And they're very similar to what you've all just said, actually. You can maybe find some of those words that you've suggested here. Most of these, almost all of them, in fact, are about those transversal skills. They're about your dispositions, your ability to problem solve, learning to learn, being, becoming a lifelong learner, a well-adjusted person, and so on and so forth. They aren't about, you know, did you learn the colors of the rainbow? Did you learn, uh, you know, your multiplication tables? I'm not saying those things aren't important, but we can learn those things too even if we want to focus on, on these kinds of transversal skills. So now that we have this vision and we can say, this is where we want to end up, how are we going to get there? One important piece of the puzzle of how to build an education system to get us to where we want to be is to figure out how children themselves learn. What do children bring to this? And that's where, as developmental psychologists, I think we have a lot to offer. If we understand how children learn and what we want them to learn, we're pretty far along the way to building systems that we think are appropriate and fit for purpose. So what do you see here? A, a triangle? What, what else? Circle, sphere, OK. Well, there's neither a triangle nor a circle nor a sphere on my slide here. None of those things are actually there. You perceive them to be there because there are shapes that suggest that they're there, but they're not actually there. But your experience of seeing them there is real because your brain is filling that in. So basically, what we're always doing, whether you're an adult or a young child, is you're always filling in the gaps. You're always looking for meaning. You're always uh, making meaning in your environment, and that's, I mean, I could go into a lot of other examples, but that's a fundamental fact that we know about the way the brain works and how we learn. We are active learners. We're not just blank slates that come into a situation and say, okay, I'm ready, make it happen. That's not how it works. <laughs> we, we bring something as human beings, that's how our brains work, we bring something to the task, whether it's learning or whether it's anything else. So we're active learners, and that must be a part of this puzzle when we're thinking about how to educate children. 
The task for us as researchers uh, here is to think about what kind of approaches might be an improvement. I mean, I'm not saying everything we're doing now is wrong, right? But we're just looking for ways to make things better. What kinds of approaches might be an improvement on the way that we educate children, given what we know about how they learn and given where we want to end up? The theory that we're working with at the moment, this is very much a work in progress. The theory is, if you have playful approaches that engage children as active learners, they will be more invested in their own learning which will lead to them spending more time and more effort and being more motivated on the tasks that they're given or they're, that are set up for them in school. And they'll move their own learning on because they'll feel like an active partner in that learning. This, I mean, I don't think that's like a particularly controversial thing that I've just said, right? It sounds, it sounds fairly intuitive. However, it's not always the case that that's how we approach learning when we think about the way our entire like, system is set up. We have to really question the role of the child in all of this. Okay, so I've said a lot about the role of the child. We've established that they're active learners, and therefore, what is the role of the adult? What is the role of the teacher in all of this? Well, I'd like to tell you about an experiment that uh, is just one example of some of the very strong, compelling evidence from developmental psychology that children are, in fact, active in what's happening, that they're interpreting what they're being told. They're not simply just receiving things and it stops there. So this is, this is what the children were shown. This was done in an experimental setting, as I said, very standardized. It's not a classroom setting, we'll come to that in a little bit, but this is, you know, this is how we do research in experimental psychology. So you have a child who comes in, it's a child and a researcher. The child sees this novel thing this apparatus, they've never come across this before. You've probably never seen this before either, hopefully, unless you were in this study. They designed it just for this purpose, and that was the point. It was something new, so the child had the opportunity to learn something. The experimenter, the researcher, or the teacher in this slightly artificial scenario, showed the child some of the features of this new object. So, for instance, if you looked into this one tube over here, there was a mirror, or if you pulled this a uh, lever over here, it made a sound, and so on. So the, the researcher would demonstrate some of the features and then leave the child to play with this object all on their own while the researcher went and did something else. And they recorded what the child did. They contrasted that with a situation where the researcher brought the child in and showed them this thing but didn't demonstrate any of those features. They just said, huh, look at this new thing. I wonder what it does and then left the child to play by themselves with it for a while while they went and did something else and recorded what the child did. What do you think happened? Well, yeah, so the kids in the second scenario who weren't shown all of the things that the object, the new toy could do, they explored a lot more and they actually discovered a lot more of the features and played for a lot longer with this toy than the children in the first scenario who were shown some things. So going back to what I was saying about the child being an active learner, they're active in terms of, excuse me, in terms of interpreting also what, what we're telling them. So if I show you that it does this and it does this and it does this, the child's inference then is, well, it does this and it does this and it does this because you've just told me something and you've told me what I need to know because we're all here to help each other out. And children have that natural tendency, there's a lot of other research in this area that shows that they have this tendency to assume that you're telling them what they need to know, which is probably a good thing for them to assume most of the time. But the consequence of that is if we 
directly tell them all the time what they need to know, then that's where it stops for them. That's where their learning will stop because they'll think, well, that's it. So they're not going to explore as much. Does this mean we should just stop teaching them altogether? Just stop telling them things? Let them get on with it. We'll go and uh, sit in the tent and have a PIMS, and they can go and do their own thing, and they'll just, it'll all be fine. That's not what we're saying. That's not what the evidence from developmental psychology suggests. I have one more study to tell you about. And this one, uh, I've actually got a, a graph with some data for you this time. What you see here is what they showed the children at the top. So they were asking children to learn about triangles. These were young children. You may all be aware that for some reason triangles seem to be a very important thing that adults seem to think that all preschoolers need to learn about. So be it. Uh, so they chose this, this one area that we know, you know is like a major feature in most uh, preschool classrooms or settings. And they used three different scenarios. So they either let the children just play with the triangles and see what the children learned about them. That was the completely free play situation or they sat the children down and told them what triangles are. So they said there's three angles and there's three sides and here are some examples. Some of them are typical. Some of them are... So they, they taught the children about the triangles and their features. And then there was a situation in the middle of those two where they let the children play with them, but the adult was there to guide the child's, you know, to, to direct them a little bit and guide them in their exploration. So if the child said, oh, you know, there's there's always three on this one, and you know the adult could have a conversation with them and follow the child's lead without directly telling them. What do you think happened? Well, what happened was, you maybe can't see very well, but on the left is the guided play scenario where the children learned the most. So they were the best at classifying triangles at the end of this activity if they had been guided as opposed to if they had just been left to play on their own, all the way on the right, the free play scenario. And in the middle was this direct instruction where you just tell them how it works. So we're not saying, or I'm not saying, just let them go and play by themselves and they'll figure it all out. But I'm also not suggesting that the best way to do it is just to tell them. It's the idea that there's a role for the teacher and a role for the child and jointly they can learn. What might this look like in an actual classroom? So those were experiments. Well, in an actual classroom, there are lots of um, approaches that exist already that draw on these kinds of um, uh, principles where there's a role, an active role for the child, and the adult is there to support and guide the child's learning. One of them you may be familiar with is Montessori. Some of you may have heard of Montessori schools. Another one is Reggio Emilia. There's, there's a number of these things. This is an example from a Reggio-inspired school in Miami, Florida, in the States. And what you can see in each of these four examples is the children learning about time. They're not sitting in a semicircle in front of a teacher up at the front with a clock who's telling them, look, children, this is how time works. This is the clock, and let's count together. One, two, three. That's not what they're doing. Instead, the children are given an environment in which they can explore these ideas. They can do it together. So there's children working together in a few of these pictures. And they can also teach each other. The adult is there. The adult has set it up in a way that they're likely to you know, discover <clears throat> things about time, but the adult isn't the one who's, who's directing their learning. So that's, that's just one, one example of how, how this might look in an actual classroom. Finally, our work in the center uh, 
currently, is very much in its development phase. We started about six months ago, and we're working on developing playful approaches to science learning, and we're focusing on work in reception and in year one. So far, we've had a few focus groups with local teachers, and we're working closely with them so that we can bring as David demonstrated in the video that you saw earlier, what we know about the research literature and how children learn, particularly in science, and they can bring their uh, experiences from the classroom, and together we can work out some actual practical ways to support children's learning in a way that's uh, more you know, child-led than perhaps teachers are used to doing. I say that, actually, we're noticing a very big difference in the approaches, the existing approaches already, between reception and year one. So those of you who are familiar with you know, what's going on in those, in those two different year groups, I mean, that won't, be, that won't be news to you, but it's very interesting to us to see how readily the reception teachers adopt these ideas of child-led and so on, and the year one teachers are receptive to these ideas and they think it's very interesting and exciting for them and liberating as teachers, but they're working within these constraints of the timetable, if nothing else. And they're saying, well, I've got one-hour blocks. How do, I, how do I do this thing where I let children discover how the clock works with the mulch outside in the playground and then stop them and move on to the next thing? So they're much more structured in their setting, which makes these approaches challenging. So that's what we're doing at the moment with them. We're exploring the challenges, but also the opportunities uh, of uh, adopting this kind of approach. And I hope you'll check back in with us in some months' time when we've made some more progress and we have more to share on, on the early approaches to science. I'll turn it over to Jenny now. Thanks, Sarah. So I'd like to talk to you about the science of playtime. So what happens when children get outside of the classroom and we think about what goes on in the playground. There are loads of learning opportunities in playgrounds, but we tend not to think of them as um, learning opportunities in the school day, or certainly typically it's been a neglected area in developmental science. So I want to tell you about one um, approach that we're developing in our lab that's hoping to take a... Um, I'm not quite sure about the image credit for this, so if anybody knows, do let me know. <laughs> um, but I found it on Google. So we're trying to take a more scientific look at what children get up to, what they're learning in the playground. Um, we certainly do know that um, there's some research that's come out of North America from Anthony Pellegrini's lab that shows that children tend to up their game when they're out there on the playground with their peers in a way that they don't do when they're with adults who might cut them a bit of slack. So it's certainly an interesting learning opportunity. I've been working with um, this fantastic charitable organisation called Learning Through Landscapes. Some people might have heard of them. Um, they promote all kinds of outdoor learning and play opportunities for children. And they are often involved in redesigning playgrounds and thinking about how children get the most out of the play space available to them. There's some really interesting research that um, suggests that what we as adults might think of the characteristics of a really good playground are not the same things that children actually play with. So there's been some interesting research that says um, actually fixed structures in playground are quite often neglected by children. So the fancy new slide the school has spent £5,000 on um, might not be the investment that they think it is. 
actually some research has shown that drain covers are actually one of the most popular <laughs> features of play in school playgrounds. So we can't really predict um, what children will play with. But there's an interesting theory that's been helping us to guide our research in this area. Um, just before I go on to tell you a bit more about the theory behind it, I want to introduce the team we're working with. Um, so, um, up at the top is Richard from Learning Through Landscapes. We're working with two computer scientists, and you might be wondering why on earth we've got computer scientists on board um, a project looking at school playgrounds, and that will become clear later. Um, and we've also got um, a developmental psychiatrist who's interested in social development and autism. Um, that's also my area, and I'm a developmental psychologist. So there's a lot of different people coming together. Um, we've got community organisations on board, so Learning Through Landscapes, Hackney Play Association, um, Touchwood, who build high-quality wooden play materials for playgrounds, and Children's Scrap Store, who um, provide play materials too. So um, we were guided by this idea of um, loose parts play. And when I first heard about this, it sounded like something you really probably shouldn't Google. Mm -hmm. It was uh, a, a really a new concept to me. And it's a concept that comes from design theory, first of all, from um, Nicholson. And Nicholson suggests that in any environment that we go into, the degree of creativity or inventiveness that we express um, will really be proportional to the amount of variables in that environment. The things you can get hold of, you can grab, that you can drop on the floor, the fluids that you can play with, um, anything can be considered a variable. And the playwork community in particular has been very active in developing this into a theory of play, um, particularly around the ideas of child-led and risky play, so giving children objects in their environment or opportunities in their environment that will lead them to kind of take risks um, and develop these new adventurous skills. But this community have been um, struggling quite a bit. Um, Learning Through Landscapes came to me and said, we know this approach is really good. There's lots of great qualitative research. When we go into schools and we Im implement our loose parts play, um, everybody says it's fantastic. The children seem happier. They seem settled when they come back into class. Um, but we can't prove it. When we talk to the hard-nosed commissioners, they say, OK, well, you know, prove all these benefits to me in a scientific way, um, and then we might consider funding it. So it's probably the sort of same old story. Um, I'd just like to say here that we are um, in the Pedal Centre and our philosophy more generally within our research group, we do um, recognise that play is a human right for children. So irrespective of any kind of economic or developmental benefits, I think children should be doing this kind of thing. But it is also illuminating and interesting to look at whether we can actually quantify some of the benefits and the changes that come along with providing a better quality play offer at playtime. So let me just show you what this looks like in practice. So here we have, um, this is a play street. Um, it might look like there's a load of old junk there. It looks like rubbish that someone's thrown away. And actually, quite often, the loose parts materials that are um, provided in this kind of scenario are recycled materials. So organizations like Children's Scrap Store and some other companies will actually go around and collect donations and make sure they get to schools. So what happens when you put... Um, these um, parts around children, well, anything can happen. We have a Formula One racing car emerging from the rubbish here. So the possibilities are endless. We were really interested in how we could um, develop this imaginative play further. So how do we add the science bit in? 
Well, I've been studying play and play times for um, quite a number of years, and I've thought lots and lots and lots about what I would ideally like to be able to do. And I was inspired by um, this kind of modelling that's actually from sports. Um, this is a map showing Wayne Rooney's pitch coverage during a World Cup qualifying match. And you can see the potential here of looking at movements and understanding something about children's behaviour and development. So we can infer that maybe the defenders weren't too happy at one point when <laughs> there's a lot of coverage at this end of the pitch. Um, we might um, conclude that this is a particularly active player. So I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if we could do this with children? If we could um, release children in a space and follow their movements and really see how they use that space, how they interact with each other. And I talked to a lot of different people about how we might achieve this, whether we could do it through video-based tracking, which um, I think this was done by, whether we could use radio frequency ID tags. And the solution we came up finally um, was with very high-resolution GPS. So I've been working with computer scientists at the um, UCL, University College London, Professor Steele, Stephen Hales and Dr. Um, Bezad Haravi. And together we've been devising a system that will help us to um, track children's movements during play. So we've designed a study where, first of all, we'll be developing this methodology um, and we'll be seeing how children move about in their playground, which is just a typical standard concrete rectangle. And we'll be tracking their interactions over two weeks. Then we're going to implement the loose parts play intervention, and we'll see whether we see any um, differences in the movements and the interactions of the children when those materials are down on the playground. Of course, this is a very... Um, a very early stage of development, so we're not thinking of doing a big randomised controlled trial of the loose parts play intervention with the GPS um, tracking added, simply because we need to get our method perfected first. In fact, the boards are still in development, so it's very early days. But I've got a video here of some pilot data, so you can get a sense of the kinds of information that we might get back um, from this scenario. So um, here we have a white rectangle that's just representing the space that the children are playing in. And each coloured dot is a different child. So I'll just uh, click play. Obviously, this is speeded up somewhat, but you can um, get a sense of what's going on. So we've got a group of children. Looks like we might have two clusters. So maybe we could start to infer things about who's friends with whom, what they're up to. Maybe these guys are plotting something. And oh, maybe this guy's feeling a little bit left out now. <laughs> She's had enough going off to the loo. <laughs> I'm sorry for a dot. <laughs> and this person is still extremely active, even though um, their peers are all standing still. So it's quite a lot of interesting things going on there. I'll just show you a little bit um, about what that looks like with the uh, layered on top of the GPS satellite information. This is a different place scenario, and it's a little bit less easy to see. Oh. So we can see here children starting off at the schoolhouse. These guys are running right down to the bottom of the playing field, playing under the trees. And oh, look, there's a chasing game going on all the way around, and they're back, reconvening, and whoop, they're off again. So there's some really interesting information. Obviously, the children in this scenario are very lucky. They've got a very um, large playing field. Um, they've got a lot of space to play about in, and they're absolutely making the most of it.
Interesting for me is this tendency for them to um, cluster around the outside of this massive big space. There's not much to bring them together um, in the middle of this particular play space. So how do we actually implement this? Um, we have two methods. So we have um, something that attaches to a shoe, which gives us a dead reckoning. One of the schools we're working with is, is in central London, and that's quite difficult with the signals bouncing everywhere from the GPS. Um, so we have a shoe flap. We also have a hat. Um, this is us trying out um, adult-sized ones in the office. So it just straps on the um, ankle there, and it's relatively unobtrusive during play. So what can we get out of this um, to study? Um, I'm quite interested in the possibilities for looking at children's physical activity levels um, within the playground. So there's quite a bit of existing evidence from Australia that the loose parts play approach does improve physical activity. And interestingly, um, it also improves physical activity for girls, which is something that's quite difficult to do. Um, I'm also interested in whether we can tell something about a child's sociability from this kind of information. So whether we can use data derived from that satellite information and simply from the metrics there to look at who's talking to whom, who might be having more difficulties joining one of those clusters that emerge. So there are a number of ways that we might want to do that. We might want to look at how often children are together in the same space. So we can look at the probability of clustering in a certain area versus any other area on the playground. Uh, we could look at the distance the um, child tends to cover over the playground, so a bit like the um, Wayne Rooney idea from the graph earlier. We could look at how often the child connects to another person in the playground as well, or whether they tend to be more solitary. We're also hoping to map these kind of data um, to data that we gather through traditional methods in psychology, such as questionnaires or one-to-one -one interviews and tasks that tell us something about sociability. Um, we're right in the middle of doing this study, so unfortunately I don't have any, um, any of these metrics to present to you today, but maybe if you invite me back next year, um, we can talk more about that data then. Just to give you a bit of confidence that this method might work, and I'm not completely crazy, people have successfully done this with mice. So this is a study from the um, Weizmann Institute in um, Israel. And you can see these are mice in cages. The different colors represent different mice. And believe it or not, these mice are differentially sociable. So we've got some genetic strains of mice that we know are more sociable and some that are less sociable. And based on their movement um, within the cage, it's been possible to actually predict which, which type of mouse you have using the movement data alone. And um, to date, certainly from this paper in 2013, the algorithm they had for doing that, so the computational program they used to predict what kind of mouse you had, was at least as good as humans doing the same job. So there is a lot of potential in this kind of methodology. So um, for now, um, I'll say thank you to all our funders and participants. It's been great to work with so many people who are interested in children's play. And of course, to the um, Economic and Social Research Council who funded it, and also the Lego Foundation pr for providing the um, Research Centre funding, um, which you know is absolutely fantastic. It's a real privilege. So finally, um, we'd like to um, throw the floor open, really, to ask us some questions. We wondered whether you had questions over whether um, possible curtailments to play could have um, 
a catastrophic, potentially is a strong word, um, but does it have an influence on children's development? Um, and also, what are your thoughts about the role of play and learning in schools? So please do ask your questions. I'll go and sit down. Um, feel free to address questions to any of us. Thank you very much. Good, so we have a question over there. Um, hello. Could you tell me your definitions of play, uh, well-being, development? Um, can you tell me where, um, where that definition comes from and how the definition of play, well-being, development and so on uh, differs or perhaps not differs across different cultural groups, uh, religious groups, um, and um, groups where perhaps women are uh, less powerful or more powerful, uh, and so on. Sorry, it's... A That's a big one. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Did you have the... Was that for a particular person? Or? No, for anyone. Sorry. <laughs> Shall I take that one? Well, yeah, you Yeah. I think a woman ought to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the strand of research that I'm leading within the... Um, Lego Foundation um, Pedal Centre is actually entitled What is Play? And the idea behind asking that very big question is that we uh, recognise there's been research on this topic for hundreds of years and across many different cultures and nobody's been able to come up with a hard and fast definition. There are always exceptions. Um, so I guess the approach that I've taken has been a very pragmatic approach, which has been, what is the definition of play that allows us some insights into child development? And by di development, I mean that interaction um, between the child themselves as a kind of biological identity and also their social environment, which might include the family and the culture. And also, as it changes over time, these things will feed back into each other. So I, I'd love to talk to you afterwards about the... the the deeper sort of complexities of the cultural differences, but it's, uh, it's a very good question. It's a really important question for play research. Yes, in the middle. Thank you. Um, that was very interesting. Thanks very much. My question is for Sarah. I, I was wondering whether there were particular types of things that um, were better taught in one way or another. So are there... Does it depend on what the children are learning, whether direct instruction or completely free play or, or guided play is best? Uh, that sounds like a research question, <laughs> uh, an empirical question, actually. The fact is that we don't really know for sure, and that's one of the things that we can address in this kind of uh, research that we're, we're doing. Um, I can link it to something that we've been coming across in the teacher workshops, which is that when you have something very specific in mind that you want the children to learn, taking a guided approach can be more challenging than if you don't have something that's specific in mind. So they may learn things, but, but they may be things that you didn't anticipate. And that's, I mean, that challenges you know, our entire paradigm of education. So I think what you're asking is really important, and we don't know the answer yet exactly. Other questions, yes. Lady here at the front. Um, I know we're talking about play, but how do you feel about learning through things like spark abilities on YouTube or the hideous Justin's house kind of 
programs on CBBS? How does that fit in? Because it's not with a human being, but it is they're learning something, whether they're learning signing or whatever it happens to be. Um, my children are about in their 30s now, so it's a long while since mm. I <laughs> looked at those kind of TV programs. Um, I mean, there is, a, there is a body of evidence suggesting that actually children learning through media in that kind of way is generally less effective than learning through, by interaction with, with other children or, um, or, or with adults, um, simply because of its lack of interactivity. You know? um, I mean, it goes back to Sarah's point about children being active learners, you know, and the where their thinking's going and what they're interested in you know, can change know and can change moment by moment when they're very young and of course a TV program can't respond to that having said that um, I certainly remember my children enjoying them in, enormously and actually occasionally surprising um, us by announcing something they'd learnt from the TV <laughs> so I don't know if you want to there, yeah I mean there, there has been some research on that and one of the things that's really interesting that you may have noticed with young children in particular is that they really like to watch the same thing over and over right. and over and over why is that they're getting something out of it they're asking for that they always want that particular show or that particular movie um, and so there's been some research on that, and it turns out that they're because they're learning more each time. It's like us when we see crazy movies like um, oh, I can't think of the name, but you know the ones you can't get your head around and you have to watch it a second time. Well, if you're a little child, that's what a cartoon is like. You know, they have to see it again and again, and then each time it's like, oh, that's what that is. So I think there's some evidence, you know, that it's it's exciting for them because they are picking up things uh, from from TV shows. But there's also evidence, as David said, that shows, for instance, um, that if you just put a child in front of a, even what are, what are deemed or what are uh, proclaimed to be educational programs, if they just watch it by themselves versus watching it with an adult, they're going to learn a lot more of those, say, the words that they're teaching in that show if there's an adult with them who can talk about it with them than if they're just watching it by themselves. So there's, there's starting my, to be some research yeah, on these. I think things. my girls learn most from neighbours. Because <laughs> <laughs> then we'd have conversations over the tea table, you know. Dad, what do you think about, you know, if a friend does this? You know, kind of moral questions that were raised in the programme. But, yeah. Any other questions? Oh, somebody over there, yeah. I think many people have heard uh, about neurological research on London taxi drivers oh, yeah. and how the bits of their brain grow. You may not know that a more recent study has been made of musicians, particularly pe people who can play the piano. And they looked at people who teach piano as music teachers and found that on average they spent two hours a day practicing the piano with the result that the bit of their brain that you know, controls that sort of thing actually physically grew as well as lit up. Um, but then when they went to concert pianists who typically practice for four hours a day, they found not only did their brains grow, but they grew by exactly twice as much Yeah, yeah. on average. And therefore, uh, does that relate to children playing and brain <laughs> development? Well, um one thing we certainly know about play is that it, it generates enthusiasm. You know, it's, it makes things fun, uh, and as a consequence, children tend to do more of it. So, in, for example, in the writing study I've done, one comment of the teachers was, 
that uh, the children, they never, they didn't, whereas they used to have children who didn't like writing and consequently uh, would often say they didn't know what to write about and they didn't write very much, that once we made it playful through, you know, doing the Lego building, um, they hadn't had any child, not a single child in the whole study ever came to their teacher and said they didn't know what to write about and they didn't want to write. And of course, if you generate enthusiasm for something and children do more of it, as you've just said, the, the one thing that's been established in psychology for probably 50 or 60 years is that uh, you can, the main thing that predicts how good you get at something is how much of it you do. And um, so if all, the, if all that a playful approach is doing is motivating children to do more of what you want them to do, be it play with triangles or <laughs> play the piano or whatever, um, you know, then that's an obvious mechanism you know, through which it could work. But actually, there have been studies of all sorts of groups. Sorry, yeah. Another. Carry on, please. No, no, go on. Okay. Um, so, a slightly different question. What, what is the panel's view uh, or advice for uh, new parents to, obviously, you're interacting with the current UK uh, educational establishment and you have a lot of experience on play. What's the panel's advice for new parents to make the best choices for their children as they go through the system? the current system. <laughs> we'll, le we'll leave, uh, we'll leave uh, uh, how to change it for another question. I think, um, from my experience, I go into a lot of different schools for research, and I see it a lot. And I guess one of my key things would be to go in and see different schools, shop around, talk to people, make surprise visits, and, and really see if that playful atmosphere is there. Um, and obviously there are lots of other considerations in a school that you would want your child to go to, but I think um, go and check it out would, my, would be my key bit of advice there. Something that I would look for, and this, was, this came out in a conversation recently with someone who does a lot of teacher training, and I thought it was a really interesting angle, is are they talking about the way the teachers approach things, or are they just talking about cool activities the kids do? Because... One of the things that I talked about a lot is actually the role of the teacher and the pedagogy and the role of the child and the interaction between them. So if it's just, like Jenny said, like, oh, we've got a slide and kids can do... If it's all about cool things the kids can do, then maybe the focus isn't as much on that pedagogy and how they're supporting the children, not just in what they're learning, but in how they're developing as a person. Hmm. Um, well, some of you may um, know that I'm a member of a of a group, uh, a, a, a pressure group called Save Childhood, the Save Childhood Movement. So as you can probably imagine, I'm quite critical about what's happening in schools at the moment. But actually, despite what we might think about, you know, the testing regime, the curriculum, you know, increasing rigidity of the curriculum and so on, actually one of the heartening things, I think, and we've certainly all experienced this in the schools we're working with, is how imaginative, clever, resilient head teachers and teachers still nevertheless manage to make education exciting and fun and all those other things, those other words that you came out with, um, you know, when Sarah was asking you what you wanted. Um, so I'd go along to a school with some of those ideas in my head and get a sense of, of um, you know, to what extent I was seeing those, those bigger values being embodied rather than all the things you didn't mention, which <laughs> turned out to be on the curriculum. Um, 
I think that's, I think that's uh, you know, that would be an important guide. I mean, I just, just to reminisce for a moment about when our children started school, I remember going, we were more or less equidistant from two schools, and we went to the first school, um, and the teacher was, the, the reception class teacher was very keen to show us she got the children doing workbooks, and these workbooks were great because they were made of a special paper so that when the children had filled them all in, she could rub it all out again and use it for next year's class, which I thought gave the children a real sense of ownership uh, <laughs> of, 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 of their own learning. Um, then, and, and um, you know, we generally didn't seem to be seeing eye to eye about, you know, our values about what education was all about. And then we went to the other school and we literally couldn't get the, ch we took the children with us and they were, you know, like f five and three at the time and we couldn't get them to leave because the room was just a, like an Aladdin's paradise of just interesting things to look at, interesting things to play with, beautiful examples of children's work that they'd done that were being celebrated all around the room and so on and so forth. So for us, it was a pretty easy uh, decision, you know. So it's those, it's those kinds of underlying values, I think, that you need to try and pick up on. Uh, the red light's flashing, but we could probably fit in one last guess. Uh, I was listening to a podcast recently on education in New Zealand, and they were talking about um, they felt that the biggest challenge was actually the transfer of skills between teachers, and that that was where the biggest challenge lay, not between schools, um, but between a sort of transference of skills between teachers. And I just wondered what you thought about that. Well, there's some really interesting approaches. Um, I know that come, there's the one that comes from Japan, it's called lesson study. And this is, a, this is the idea, it's, so in the work I'm doing with teachers, we have to also remind ourselves that if we're trying to get the teachers to work with the children in a way that the children have ownership and decision making in their own learning and are active, it's the same as researchers that we want the teachers to have that ownership and decision making in their own teaching, right? So we're not going to come in and tell them to do something. It's for them to, to guide that uh, professional development for themselves. So there's a model for this that's called lesson study where teachers work together in groups and they come together <coughs> in a period after school. They decide what they want to look at. Let's say they want to work on their maths teaching. They observe each other and so on and so forth. So there, there are some, there are some you know, rigorous methods out there. It's not something that I'm using at the moment, but mm -hmm. Um, people are looking at that. Yeah. yeah. Just one final thing to say is that at Pedal Centre, um, we do have practitioner conferences as well. So do look us up on the internet. And um, teachers are very, very welcome to come along to those as well, just to meet each other and find out more about the research. Mm -hmm. um, so we certainly know that when teachers get involved in the research projects we run, they um, uh, evaluate they experience very positively, really enjoy the opportunity to talk to other teachers, um, you know, and to in, in, engage in genuinely trying to find out something with us uh, that is going to improve their pedagogy. So my advice to teachers in the room would be get involved in a research project. <laughs> uh, it's the best form of professional development, I think. Okay, I think we've got to stop. Thank you very much. Have a playful day. Thank you. Thank you.